If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up again. We're digging through the book of Acts chapter 2, looking at the church and kind of how they, they worked and operated and lived at the very beginning when it was initiated. And our text has been coming primarily out of Acts chapter uh, 2, verse 42. And it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Prayer how do I put it? Prayer is important. Prayer is, is, is an extremely essential part of the, the life of the church and of the Christian individually as well. Corey Ten Boom was asked a question. She asked this question. She says, is, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? And for many of us, unfortunately, it's probably not even our spare tire. <laughs> we forgot to put it back in the car, right? Um, too many times prayer is used, however, as a spare tire instead of the steering wheel. In our own personal lives, it's like the last thing we think about, or maybe even in the church life, it's the last thing that we think about to do as we come together in prayer. Have you ever heard of a man by the name of George Mueller? George Mueller, um, let me kind of tell you his story a little bit. Um, he lived in Bristol, England. He was born in 1805, and, and he lived to 1898, so he had a healthy, long life. But one day he was looking down the streets of Bristol, and he noticed hundreds of homeless children just kind of meandering through the streets. He was so moved and concerned for them that he decided that something had to be done. He had only two pence in his pocket. That's a, that's a couple pennies, basically. And yet he decided that he was going to start an orphanage. In 60 years, with just those two pence, George Mueller, he took care of over 10,000 orphans. He looked out and he saw homeless kids, and he could have said, but, but I don't have any money. I can't do anything. There's no way for me to care for them. There's no way for me to, to, to meet their needs or to buy their food. I, I just don't have the resources to do that. And instead, he decided he was going to pray about this, and he was going to even ask God to provide everything always, and he was never going to ask people for money. So he looked out and he helped to reach them, and God blessed his efforts in a mighty way. Now, he would often tell people about the amazing stories of prayer and how God would answer them. He kept a record of his prayers, all right? And he filled more than 3,000 pages of his prayers. His notes show that there were more than 30,000 prayers that he marked off as being answered. <laughs> that's significant. That's significant. At one point in time, things were kind of looking bleak for the orphanage there in, in Ashley Downs in England, and it was time for breakfast, and there was no food. Now, there was a small girl who was visiting that day. She was the daughter of one of his friends, and she was spending the day with him. And, and he, he, said, he said, I want you to come and see what our Father in Heaven's going to do 
And so he took her into the dining room, and there in the dining room was all these tables. They were set with plates and dinnerware, but there was no food and nothing to drink. And he prayed this prayer. He said, Dear Father, we thank you for what you are going to give us to eat. And immediately heard a knock on the door, and he went and he opened it. And it was a baker. The baker said, I, I, I thought about you and your children here, thinking maybe you don't have much to eat. And so at 2 a.m. this morning, I got up and he began baking bread for you all. And he pulled it in for them. No sooner was the bread provided for their breakfast meal that there was another knock on the door, and it was a milkman. And his milk wagon broke down out front, and he had to unload all the milk so that he could repair his wagon and get to living again. So he asked if he could share that milk with the orphanage. And so they had milk that morning for breakfast as well. Time and time again, as a matter of fact, 30,000 times, over that 60-year period, God answered his prayers and provided for this orphanage. Now, now, we could spend hours recounting similar stories in the life of George Miller. And, and, and in his own lifetime, he was distinguished as a man whose prayers could move mountains. And he steadfastly refused to ever ask anybody for financial support at all, and that he would only rely on God to provide for him in whatever means that he would place upon people's hearts. Eventually, he had four orphanages, and he, he ran them only through prayer. One time he was asked, well, how much time do you spend in prayer? And his response was this, hours every day. But he said this, but I live in the spirit of prayer. I pray as I walk and when I lie down and when I arise. And the answers are always coming. George Mueller would have been comfortable with the very first Christian believers that we read about today in Acts chapter 2. The Bible says that they were constantly coming together on a daily basis to pray. What I want us to understand this morning is this. When God's people pray, life gets interesting. You see... If we discover that, that when we come together and we pray, that God is going to move and he's going to do some things, let's open up our book of Acts and examine just a few passages this morning of, of Scripture that show us how the early church made prayer a part of their life daily. Not just individually, but the church as a whole. When they got together, they prayed. So the first is at the end of chapter 1, and here we see that they prayed when making disciples. All right, so Acts chapter 1, verse 26, 21 through 26, it says, So one of the men, they're, they're trying to figure out what's going to go on because Judas has now taken his own life. Jesus has ascended into heaven. They know that there are supposed to be 12 of them, so they've got to figure out what they're going to do. And so he says, So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, they need somebody who's been there since the very beginning with Jesus. Beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. 
And they prayed and they said, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered among, numbered with the eleven apostles. You see what they did? We know we've got to do this. And so they prayed. And then they did this unique thing by casting lots. And we'll get into that in a minute. You see, the great preacher who was a minister of of Chicago's famous Moody Church, A.C. Dixon, he declared this, when we rely upon organization, we get what organization can do. When we rely upon education, we get what education can do. When we rely upon eloquence, we get what eloquence can do, and so on. Nor am I disposed to undervalue any of these things in their proper place. But when we rely upon prayer, we get what God can do. Planning has its place And I think reason and intelligence is required when we're facing decisions. And when we see that the disciples had a leadership problem on their hands here, they needed to replace somebody. They need to be fill this position. They took care to establish godly principles. One, we've got to bring somebody in who's been around Jesus from the very beginning when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River, that he's been with us this entire time, all the way up to the fact that he has seen the resurrected Son of God. So they begin to research all the people, and they come down to two. So they've done their intellectual work ahead of time, but then that's not enough. They've got to pray. And once they prayed, they cast lots. And you have to understand this aspect has been something that was even in the Old Testament structure, that God would ask them to communicate with him. And and so in in the Old Testament structure of uh, the religious society, there was a priest that was the high priest, and he had upon a breastplate that he would wear uh, an articles that were called the Urim and the Thummim. And from those, he would then cast somehow we're really not for sure how that was done but god then would speak basically a yes or a no through that as to whether it was his will for them to go into battle or for them to shut up camp someplace else or whatever so there would be this communication with that we see that in proverbs chapter 16 verse 33 it says the lot is cast into the lap but it is every decision is from the lord we've got to trust We can do our research. We can do all the exploring and things that we think we could figure out what the idea that God wants us to do. But ultimately, then we need to go before God and ask Him to help us make this decision. And so they were committing decision to the Lord and then using the accepted protocol for discerning His will. The point for us is simply this. That when when we're faced with a a decision to make, the instinct... The instinct of these people who had been with Jesus was, let's pray about it and let's God guide us. So I ask myself this question, when I'm faced with decisions in my life, what's my instinct? Do I pray about it and then trust in God to give me or do I just go bullheaded into my own direction of what I want? 
We need to spend time in prayer. Not that researching things is a bad decision. Clearly, I mean, our text put some serious thought into that, that they had to do some research into who could be possibly these people that would be the next apostle. But then they brought it to the Lord. And I honestly believe that when you and I face a decision, we need to first ask the Lord for our help. We need to be smart about it, yes. But when we ask Him, then we've got to trust Him in that decision. And that He will show us what we need to do. And His Word promises this. Matter of fact, in James chapter 1, verse 15, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, what should you do? Let him ask God. And, and then it says, and God, who gives generously to all without reproach, it'll be given to him. You want to be smart? You want to know what to do? Pray to God that he give you the direction and the wisdom to make the decision. Prayer as a way of life means, first of all, that we pray when we're making decisions. And as a church, we have to pray the same way we do individually. When this church makes decisions, it has got to be based upon time spent in prayer and searching out what God wants us to do. Now, the second specific example of when the early church got together in the book of Acts for prayer, we find there in chapter 2. Now, we see that they're praying on a daily basis. And so let's look at verse 41 to 43 of chapter 2. When making disciples is what takes place here. To those who receive his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, for many years in Monterey, California, this little coast town at that time, it was a pelican paradise. They, they, the pelicans came there and they just enjoyed it because it was a huge fishing area. Now, the fishermen, they cleaned their fish there along the, uh, the, the piers and they would fling the offal out for the, uh, the birds to eat. And the birds, they grew fat and lazy and contented. And eventually... The offal was discovered in the fishing world, how they could even use that to make money, and so they quit tossing that out to the birds. As a result, the pelicans there in Monterey began to become um, gaunt and thin and emaciated, and some of them began dying because they were starving to death. I mean, these are pelicans, right? They had forgotten how to fish for themselves. So they figured out a way to address this problem. They brought in some pelicans from down south and brought them up and integrated them in with these other pelicans. Now these other pelicans, they hadn't been fed every day by the fishermen. So they knew how to fish. And slowly they began to teach the others how to fish for themselves. And the pelicans once again became healthy. Now Jesus came as the ultimate example for us on how we should live and, and what should we do in life. What it means to be a Christian. And when he returned to heaven, he gave his followers one mission, to go and to teach others to be like him. And that's where we are. We are in a world of people who are starving to death because they don't know how to live. 
But God has placed us in a position that we are to be the example for them. And, and in teaching them how to pray and teaching them how to relate to God, that's our calling. On the day of Pentecost, they started their job in earnest. And on that day, 3,000 men put their faith in Jesus Christ. They trusted in Him and He were baptized. So how do you take those 3,000 from trusting in the work of Christ to pay the price for their sins to begin genuinely following Jesus? You, I mean, you, you start with what we call life groups or, or home Bible study groups, getting yourself involved in something to where it, it is not just on Sunday morning, it, it interacts with you throughout the week. And so you've got to plug in and connect with other people in the church. We talked about fellowship not too long ago, right? Well, part of the reason that you come together to fellowship is so that you can pray together so your prayers are not on your own. So then we pray together and we have this relationship. Now, we know that there were about 500 followers before the day of Pentecost because Jesus had appeared to at least 500 at one setting, all right? So we, we know that there was a group of people that were there and they were trying to be those example pelicans to teach these others how to live the life of Christ. And so on that day when Pentecost starts, we've got a church that's already in motion and is inviting these other newcomers into their homes and teaching them about Jesus and how to relate to him and how to relate to one another and how to pray. New believers are often unsure really about how do they pray. And so a lot of times we tell them, well, it's like talking to your friend, right? I mean, that's good. But how much better would it be instead of just telling them it's like talking to your friend? Because some of you don't really talk to your friends, do you? What if we show them how to pray? And as we meet with them on a regular basis and we pray and we pray and we pray and then we invite them to pray, then they grow. And that's what we're supposed to do. I mean, that's what it means to make disciples. And the school of discipleship is one in which we really never graduate from. We're always learning. We're always growing. We're always gaining new insight into the Word of God and into what God wants us to do in life. And so we never leave that. And that brings me to this third way, which we make prayer a way of life. In the early church, they prayed when meeting daily... So we see in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Peter and John, they were going up to the temple, what? At the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried there, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that's called Beautiful Gate, to ask alms for those entering the temple. Now, and then the story goes on to tell how the, the apostles, Peter and John, that they didn't give him the money that he was wanting, but they gave him something even better than that. They gave him what he needed, and they asked God to heal his legs so that he would no longer have to be carried to that beautiful gate every day by his family and friends, that he would be able to walk and run and leap and praise God. And it drew the attention of everybody in the temple that day because here's this maniac. All right? They gave him something even better. Now the point I want to make is this. This miracle took place while Peter and John were on their way to do what? To pray. Not up on the mountain by themselves, but where? 
where the church was meeting because, see, the church met at the very beginning in the temple until they finally got kicked out by the Jews. All right? So they would go there and they would pray together in the temple. In the process of that, they would convert people who were coming into the temple for various different reasons and introduce them to Jesus that way. And it was their, their regularly scheduled time. And so they would go up there on the hour of prayer, which was the ninth hour of the day. And so we have to ask myself, does prayer make it into a daily pattern in my life? Do I take time to pray privately each and every day? But how about with somebody else do I do that on a daily basis? It's important for us to do that. I mean, does it, does it mean that, that we should only pray with other people? Or should, you know, when I'm driving down the road or when I'm eating my breakfast in the morning or when I'm working out or whatever I'm doing, it, it, can I take those times to, to spend in prayer? Well, yes, you can. But you've also got to be intentional in getting together with other people so that you can pray with them. That's important as well. Now, the, in both of these last two passages... It's apparent that the new Christians were doing this every day. They were meeting together both in the temple and in their homes on a regular basis. And prayer was a vital part of that. So when you come to the, quote, temple, as some people almost think of this as, we have to pray together. But this isn't the only place you pray. You also invite people into your home or you go into somebody else's home and you spend time and you pray together. Now, I can't get past this fact. Meeting together was not just for the purpose of worship. We've worshiped, right? It wasn't just so that they'd hear the apostles teach and so they could hang out and enjoy time fellowshipping with one another, but they got together so that they could specifically pray I think it was something that they learned from Jesus. What do you think? Because you read through the gospel messages there and you discover that Jesus often would pray. Not only would he go up and he'd pray by himself for hours, but he would spend specific time with his disciples praying and he even taught them how to pray. And he would pray before the people and with the people. Jesus showed us that we must truly do this. And if we want to be one of his followers, we really desire to live a life devoted to Jesus. We need to pray, and we need to pray together. Now, now you all know what horsepower is, right? Some of you guys give that Tim Allen, yeah, right, all right, all right. Right? Well, if you really don't know, let me tell you a little bit about horsepower, okay? The term horsepower was invented by an engineer by the name of James Watt. James Watt, he lived from 1736 to 1819, and he's most famous for his work in, in kind of working with uh, mechanical steam engines and stuff. All right, but we're also reminded about him every day when we talk about the 60 watt, watt light bulb. All right, well, the story goes this way James Watt was working with ponies. Matter of fact, it was coal mining ponies that he was working with. And, and he wanted a way to talk about the power that was available with these ponies to lift all this coal. And so he was working on some equations of doing that. Well, he began studying them. And he discovered that the average pony could lift about 22,000 pounds, foot pounds of work in about a minute. And then he increased that number by 50% to the horse size, all right? 
not just a pony, but now we're talking a horse. So he's, he's given a little bit more, and, and so he increased it by 50%, and he pegged the measurement of a single horsepower at this, 33,000 foot-pounds of work in one minute. Now that's just an arbitrary unit of measurement that he has created there, all right? But it's made its way down through history, and now it appears on your car, <laughs> your lawnmower, uh, your chainsaw, and some of you even have it on your vacuum cleaners, all right? How much horsepower does this baby have? Can it pick up a bowling ball, right? Okay, so we look at all these things, and what horsepower means is this, by Watt's judgment, one horse, one horse can do 33,000 foot-pounds of work every minute. So imagine a horse raising coal out of a coal mine, and a horse exerting one horsepower can raise 330 pounds of coal 100 feet in a minute. All right. Now, that can also be put this way, or 33 pounds, 1,000 feet in a minute, or 1,000 pounds, 33 feet in a minute. And you can make whatever combination that you feel like, as long as it's not 33,000 pounds by one pony a foot in a minute, because they can't do that, all right? And you can probably imagine that you would not want to load that 33,000 pounds in a coal bucket and ask the horse to move it in one minute because there's no way it can. Or would you probably imagine that you would not want to put one pound of coal in a bucket and have that horse move it 33,000 feet in one minute? I mean, that translates to that horse moving at about 375 miles an hour. So we kind of get the picture. But if you understand how block and tackle work, pulley system it changes the differential from the weight to the distance and all that goes with it and it enables us to do what we would do is this perceived weight uh, using an arrangement of pulleys so that you can create a system that brings the ability to move a large amount of weight a comfortable feel for the animal at a certain distance and speed without actually having to wear it out so that same kind of process of horsepower and that same ratio God even uses somehow in prayer, I would say, is, is an aspect of that. But let's look at Leviticus chapter 26, verse 8. When God is empowering the people of Israel to do something, he says, five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. Those things that seemingly are impossible for us to accomplish, with God, nothing is impossible. And he enables us to do mighty things that we could never do on our own. Jesus didn't intend for us to haul the load on our own. He intended for us to multiply our efforts by joining arm in arm and heart with heart in the presence of God in prayer. And so he says, as Jesus did in Matthew chapter 18, verse 19, again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Joining together in prayer is the most powerful thing that we can do as a church. So when we ask you to come for a prayer night, man, we ought to pack out this place. I mean, we had one just a few weeks ago, and it was wonderful. We had a good group of people who were here praying. But wouldn't it be great if we had to bring in more chairs from other rooms because we had so many people here who were wanting to pray? Amen? Amen? 
Finally, when God's people pray, we see that they come together when motivating deliverance. Acts chapter 12. And I want to read quite a big section here just to watch how prayer is so powerful that it changes the course of history. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter, uh, of chapter 12. At that time, Herod, he's king, he, he laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, one of those sons of thunder, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to also arrest Peter also. And this was during the days of unleavened bread, which was spoken about last week. And, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering over to four squads of soldiers to guard one man, him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but, but what? But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Isn't that amazing? Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. And centuries before the door were guarding the prison, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And they went out and he followed him. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he, he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard and they came to the iron gate leading into the city, it opened for them of its own accord and they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. Now when Peter came to himself, he, he said, now, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and, and from all that the Jews, Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name is Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came and answered, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy. She, she doesn't even open the gate, but she ran in and responded to everybody and telling them that, you know, that, that uh, reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he parted and went to another place. <clears throat> Sometimes I, I recognize there's a sense of uh, being overwhelmed when things are out outside of your control and, and you can't do anything about it boy do I like control I, I don't like it when I
I, I don't know the end result of things. How about you? I, mean, I, I want to know that, that I can do something, and that's just, maybe that's me, but I think it's common to a lot of us. We don't like things that are outside of our control. When we aren't in control, the only way that we can find peace is when we're able to trust the person who is in control. But who ultimately really is in control? I mean, that was the case of the early church when, when persecution began to break out. James was just beheaded. Peter has now been arrested and Herod himself is attacking the church and people. The government doesn't like them. And they feel things are out of control. And the Jews, they are happy because they're getting their way. So what does the church do? You see, Peter had just been arrested and he was going to be executed. And so the church prays. Like this translation says, earnestly. Another translation says, fervently. I mean, they, the church, man, they were desperately praying that God would intervene somehow. They didn't know how he was going to do it. They just knew, God, you're the only one who can do anything because it's outside of our control. Would you do something? And he shows up in a very powerful way. And they don't believe it. I believe that what happened here in Acts chapter 12 was a direct response to the church in prayer. They prayed for deliverance, and God delivered him. You see, God rescued Peter from a certain death that night, and he foiled the plans of Herod and the Jewish people who were waiting to, to get him. And, 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 and I don't know about you, but that in story encourages my faith. When I see what the church did, I love how it all unfolds. I mean, Herod's not taking any chances. He doesn't want Peter to somehow Houdini his way out of the jail. And so he's got four squads of soldiers guarding this one guy. And he's even got two of them chained to him inside the cell so that nothing is going to happen to him. They've got multiple sentries as they have to go through before they even get to the gate that is locked. And somehow, miraculously, it opens all on its own. And nobody is totally aware of what's happening in the process of him walking right out past them. It amazes me. Maybe we look at, look at Peter in the middle of all this, and where is he at the beginning of this? He's going to die tomorrow, and he knows it. He's sleeping. He's sleeping. How could he be sleeping? Maybe he's reminded of Jesus' word in Matthew uh, chapter 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I really don't know what was going through Peter's mind at that time, but I do know that the church was praying with earnest. And because of that, Peter's life was spared. The Pharisees, they were pushing back against the church because they were afraid of what the church was going to do to their structure. Chapter 4, verse 31 of the book of Acts, it says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together 
was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Have you ever been in a place where people were praying and all of a sudden the building started moving? Want to try? I'm serious. You want to try? You want to get to the point where our prayers are so impacting that the earth shakes because God is up to something. Church, we have forgotten the power of prayer. My mother taught me how important it is to pray. And I've seen time and time again, through her and in my own life, God answering prayers. And He'll answer yours. He'll answer ours. But we've got to be a people of prayer. I mean, it's the lifeblood of the church today as well. I mean, it's it's corporate prayer and church coming together isn't just an add-on to our service. It's probably one of the main reasons we come together. So that we can can move things in our world that the world doesn't want moved. Do we believe? If you talk to anyone who has experienced a revival or some time of of real church transformation, the growth, you listen to them and they'll tell you it began in a prayer meeting in a little cottage or in a house, or in the basement of the church. And people will put aside all kinds of things on their calendars. But unfortunately, we don't put aside moments of prayer. Because in those moments, that's when we are truly interacting with the most powerful being that the universe has ever known and he listens and he responds but we've got to be alongside of him in prayer we've got to pray for the lost for the sick for the addicted for the enslaved for the widows for the young people for the seniors everyone people will be as passionate about prayer as they are about eating fried chicken or barbecued wings on a super bowl sunday People who will go to the mat of prayer and not get up until they've reached heaven, those are the people that I want here. When God's people pray, there's deliverance, there's power, there's action. Prayer is an important function of the church. I don't know how many times I've talked with people and they say, Well, I can't do anything, I don't have any talents or any gifts. And, and I tell them, you can pray. Well, you don't get it. Prayer is the greatest thing that you can do. Some people can play guitar or drums or, or, or they, can, they can build buildings. And some people may not have those abilities, but we all have a commonality amongst us that the best thing that we can do is we can pray. That's something for anybody and everybody. 
Maybe you're in your 90s and you feel like your life is just about over. Oh my goodness. Pray. Because the prayer of a righteous man avails much. But here's the problem. Our failure to think of prayer as something significant and powerful may be partly due to the fact that we can pray anytime we want, right? I mean, the door to heaven is always open in prayer, so we just take it for granted that we can do it, and it doesn't seem like it's that big of a thing. But if we tell someone to do something that seems hard or spectacular, we're more apt to have them do it because it seems almost impossible than it is to do something that is so simple. Joni Erickson Tata, she said it this way, like art, like music, like so many other disciplines, prayer can only be appreciated when you actually spend time in it. Spending time with the master will elevate your thinking. And then she says, the more you pray, the more will be revealed. You will understand. You will smile and nod your head as you identify with others who fight long battles and find great joy on their knees. When we don't pray, it's primarily because we don't sense our need for prayer. We don't think we really need God to intervene on this. But trust me, you do. Martin Luther said, No man should be alone when he opposes Satan. The church and the ministry of the Word were instituted for this purpose. That hands may be joined together and one may help another. If the prayer of one doesn't help, the prayer of another will. So where are you? I mean, do you use prayer as that spare tire that Corey Ten Boom was talking about? Or do you use it as your steering wheel? Do you allow it to guide you in life? Or is it just there, but it's never used in case of emergencies? I'm told that early on, when missionaries were going into Africa, the Africans, they discovered that they needed to be earnest in their prayer life and in their devotion to God. And so it was reported that each one of them would, would find a place in the thicket and they would go out and they would spend time alone in prayer on a regular basis. Over time, the paths that went out to those different places of, of prayer and, and devotion, they, they began to be worn down and the grass was killed and it was obvious there was a, a path of prayer that was there. However, when somebody began to neglect his time of prayer, it was noticeable. And the others would say to him, brother, the grass grows on your path. And I guess I need to ask you that question, is this. Is the grass growing on your path to prayer? Or have you created a rut? We need to be people of prayer because it's in our prayer that God moves. Let's pray.
Father, we know we know we fail too often by our own strength, by our own identity, and, and we look at ourselves and we say, who am I? And yet when you see us, you don't see somebody who is a failure. We don't see somebody who is weak, somebody who is ineffective. What you see is somebody who bears the identity of your son, Jesus. Because we've been covered with his blood. And Father, we know that he obviously had your ear. And when he prayed, we see that you responded. Even when he stopped and he took time and he prayed there about Lazarus being in the grave, he didn't have to do that, but he did. And then Lazarus came out. Father, help us to be people who are creating a path to our area of prayer and that it's well-worn. And Father, we'll see what you do in our community because this church is a church that prays. Use us and forgive us of our silence. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.